church. I mean, between the churches that he plants, the gospel being proclaimed, and the collection of writings which make up our New Testament, it is hard to argue anyone besides Jesus having such a profound impact on Christianity. So today we're going to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as Paul. And if as we're going through here, I interchange Saul and Paul, you're all very smart, you know I'm talking about the same guy. As we do that, as we're looking at this story, we're going to see some prescriptive things and some descriptive things. We've seen these throughout Acts. Some things are telling us just what happened. It's not necessarily how it goes every time. Some things are telling us this is the way it should go every time. We're going to have a little bit of both. We're also going to see, though, as we learn from Saul, and not only Saul, but the people around him who play a role in seeing him step into this new relationship with Christ, what we can learn, how we can take that uh, and respond to it in our own lives. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump into Acts chapter 9. So please bow your heads and uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we uh, lift up the kids of Grace Place, the kids of our church, kids even too young for Grace Place yet. Lord, we pray that as a community, not only as the Grace Place leaders, but as a community, we are able to love and serve and care for them, that we are able to reflect your love and your goodness and your character in the way that we care for one another, the way that we are friends, the way that we are a church together, the way that we worship together, that as we know, they are always watching, they're always paying attention, and we pray that we are able to be good representatives to the kids of this church. Lord, we do pray for our Grace Place volunteers as they serve and love and, and care for our kids, that you would give them extra energy, extra patience, help them to remember that they have a great opportunity before them to point these little ones to you, that they could come to know you at an early age, that they would know your goodness, your character, and your love for them. Lord, I pray for us as a church as you continue to strengthen and bind us together. You would help us to get past the superficial light conversations and light relationships, but to really truly get deep into conversation, into, into relationship with one another, that we would grow and challenge and encourage and walk together through the good and the hard of this life. God, we pray as we come this morning. We come having a variety of different weeks, having a variety of different months. Even this morning has been, for some, harder than others. And in the midst of all of that, there have been times where we have chosen our way over your way, where we have chosen to rebel against you, whether through intentional choice or just omission of an opportunity to do well, to do good. And Lord, we bring all of that to you this morning, and we say that we need you. We need more of you. We're here to engage with you. We're here to connect with you. We're here to hear from you. So, Lord, I pray that as we read this morning that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to comprehend, hearts to believe, and hands and feet to respond to what you have for us today. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. I'm going to read a section, and then we'll go back uh, and talk about it. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he heard, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the, order, from the chief priests who bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him much how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Let's stop there. So the chapter starts, Saul is still breathing threats. He hasn't slowed down or let up. We saw at the beginning of chapter 8, in the first opening verses, that uh, at the end of 7, Stephen is stoned to death, and from that, Saul begins to attack, persecute the church. He is kicking down doors, dragging out men and women from Jerusalem who are Christians, who are followers of the way, as it says here. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he is arresting them. And so it says he is still breathing threats and murder against them. He hasn't slowed down on any of them. Most of the persecution, most of the attacks were happening in Jerusalem. But now Saul is reaching out beyond the holy city, following Christians. Because as he was attacking the Christians in Jerusalem, they spread. They got out of the city. And so we spent some time looking at Philip in Samaria. And they went all around the region. And now Saul is not just satisfied with attacking them in Jerusalem, he's going and chasing them down outside of the city. And so one of the places he's going to is the city of Damascus. So I got a map for you. I know it's a little small. Down here is Jerusalem. Way up here is Damascus. And all along the way, he's stopping when he can to arrest Christians. But the goal is to get to Damascus and he's got paperwork from the high priest that says when he gets there, he's allowed to arrest, to basically do what he needs to do to arrest those Christians, to arrest those Jesus followers, and march them all the way back down to Jerusalem to be arrested. It says he is attacking those followers of the way. This is the first time it's being used. This, the way seems to be one of the earliest names for the gathering of the followers of Jesus. This phrase is used five different times throughout Acts and a couple other uh, references throughout the New Testament. Because to follow Christ is more than adhering to a set of beliefs or instructions or opinions. It is to follow a way of life and the way of salvation. Christ said himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, the beginning, the trailblazer, the one who set things in motion. So we who have put our faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we are following the path. We are following his path, his way. Everything about Saul, from his early childhood all the way growing up, all of the schooling, everything about his life has been 
consumed with becoming a Pharisee, with protecting the temple. Everything about all that he is, his whole being was convinced that what he was doing was right and good and was serving God. Not only was he serving God, but as I said, he's protecting the temple and he's protecting generations, the legacy of Jews that he stood on the shoulders of, and he's protecting the legacy of those of the future. He is to protect the temple, protect the law, protect the, the place and the gathering spot that he believed that these Christians, these Jesus followers, were blaspheming against. His zeal and passion for this was so great, he's arresting people on his own. He is, by all accounts, the least likely person to wind up a Christian. He is lost and helpless and hopeless. He is angry. He hates the way. And he is destroying the church at every chance he can. Too often, too, too often in history, in the name of the church, in the name of Jesus, wrongly, we have justified and convinced ourselves that what, was, what we were doing, what was happening was in the name of God, so it was okay. Even though too many times it spread anger and hate and fear and even death. If you think you are being led by God, if you think you are being led by the Holy Spirit, and that that leading is leading you to antagonize, to berate, to belittle, to attack, to hurt, or to kill. You aren't being led by the Holy Spirit. You are being led by Satan. By every appearance, in every way, Saul was going to fight this movement until his last breath. He was going to do everything in his power to stop them. He had one of those that days, that day that is burned in your memory, that day when it's, when it's real, when it becomes yours, when you know not only your heart that you belong to Jesus. For me, I was in second grade. I went to a, a Bible grammar school so they could, you know, read the Bible and pray in school and it wasn't weird or didn't get anybody in trouble. And during second grade, I don't remember what class it was, but Miss Griffin gave, I remember her giving uh, a gospel, and I remember going up front, that was not expected, going up front, and I remember that day was the day. For some of you, you don't remember that moment. You put your faith in Jesus when you were a little kid, you grew up with it around you, you grew up going to church, it's just kind of been part of who you are forever. Amen, if that's your story. And thank God that you were protected that way. But my guess is, even if that's your story, if you really stop and think about it, you have a that day. It might not be day one, but it, there was a day somewhere in there where you truly felt like it was yours, where your faith was your own. It wasn't your parents. It wasn't your church communities. It was yours. It wasn't just, this is a thing that I do, but this is my thing. Saul has a that day moment, and it's one he never forgets. He talks about it frequently going forward. He stopped in his tracks, it says in verse 3. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and he hits the ground. He and the men hear a voice. The men are speechless. They don't know what to do about this. But this voice and this light, everything that happened here, wasn't for the other guys. It wasn't for the entourage that he was with. This was direct and personal to Saul. And he hears a voice. Saul Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
think it's interesting that Pharisees grew up debating. Saul was in all ways kind of like a lawyer. He could debate. He could go back and forth. And we'll see as we go throughout the book of Acts, he is very rarely at a loss for words. But here in this interaction, he's only got a few. He's got one question. Who are you? Saul, you watched and approved of Stephen's murder. You broke into houses, dragging men and women to prison. You are now traveling all the way to Damascus, looking to do more of the same, all because these people invoke my name. So here I am, Saul. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, we don't know the relationship or the interactions between Jesus and Saul prior to this moment. Did Saul ever hear Jesus teach in a synagogue? It's possible, I would say even probable. Just as it's very possible that Saul was part of the Sanhedrin board that voted to have Jesus strung up on a cross. Did he hear him teach? Did he experience one of his miracles? Did he get some of that bread when he fed those 5,000? We don't, we don't know how deep that interaction went. But for as common of a name as Jesus was at the time, when the Lord spoke, he didn't need to add, of Nazareth. He didn't need to give any identifiers. Saul clearly knew exactly what was happening. And because of that, because of this interaction, it was clear to Saul in that moment, Jesus is alive. Now there are some who want to dispute and argue and ignore this whole account. They chalk it up to a hallucination or some kind of manipulation or a dream or just flat out say it's all a lie and made up. That is all seemingly refuted in the life that Paul goes on to, Saul goes on to lead after this event. Because he spent the rest of his life in service to Jesus. Not only in service, but living in light of severe and harsh conditions and situations. He gives a little bit of a brief idea of it, a list of it in 2 Corinthians 11. Saul writes, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my, on me of my anxiety for all of the church. He spends the rest of his days after this moment, traveling, being chased, planting churches, in and out of prison, trying to get to Caesar. He wants to get to Rome. He wants to see Caesar. He wants to preach the gospel to him. Paul dies, refusing to recant, refusing to back down, refusing to stray from the way. His life is the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just the sheer change that goes from who he was to this moment on Damascus to who he lives the rest of his life to be. If you want to negate Jesus and the resurrection and the reality and actuality of Christianity, you have to take into account the staunch and amazing and complete change in the person and work of Saul of Tarsus and his legacy that he leaves behind him. I think it's why Spurgeon said what he said, that opening quote. We're even going to see that there's two more times. Luke thinks this event is so important that he spends, he's got this event, the conversion of Saul, shows up two more times in the book of Acts. 
it's in this moment that so much changes for the church. And everything about who Saul was changes. He encountered Jesus and he found out what we know largely Saul. That Jesus is God and God is in control of all things at all times. In this moment, Saul's plans, his agenda, his five-year goals, all of it is out the window. The risen, resurrected, defeater of sin and death, Jesus Christ, told Saul in verse 6, go to the city of Damascus, but not for the reason that you were originally going to go. It says in verse 8 that the light had blinded him so much, uh, the light had blinded him, and so he had to be led by hand out to, to Damascus. He was originally going to that city so that he could capture Christians and lead them back to Jerusalem. Now, instead, he is being led into that city, helpless, for an entirely different purpose. Verse 9 says, once in, he's in Damascus, he spends three days in darkness, literal darkness, blind to the world, and he either neither ate nor drank. He sat, presumably, alone. What must have been going through his mind? I mean, Paul was well-schooled in scriptures. He had one of the greatest of teachers. He knew the words of the prophets. He knew the words and the actions of God. He knew the prophecies of the Messiah that was supposed to come, the Messiah he, up until that moment, was still waiting on. He could articulate all of it. He could teach it. It framed and guided everything about him. But now he sits blind, hungry, and thirsty, and he's got to rethink everything he knew about the Bible. He had to reconsider things like that speech we read in chapter 7 that Stephen gives before he was stoned. At the time, Saul considered that an arrogant blasphemy against God, but now, now maybe those words rang a little differently in Saul's head and carry a little bit different weight. Saul had to reconsider who Jesus was because if he was alive, and if he was the Messiah, then Saul had been completely wrong and would have to change everything. But that change would still have to be grounded in the same scriptures that he thought he once understood. As Paul sat blind and fasting in Damascus, trying to process everything that had just happened, God was also at work in a man named Ananias. You see, in verse 10, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. God speaks to this Christian living in Damascus, tells him, I want you to get up and go. Similar language to what he said to Saul on the road, right? In verse 6, he tells Saul, get up, rise, go to the city. Here it's rise, go to the street. Get up, get moving. There's work to be done in the name of God. When God tells you to get up and go, you get up and go. God tells Ananias that Saul of Tarsus has been given a vision of a man named Ananias, showing up at his house, pray, laying hands on him, and Saul receiving his sight back. Ananias, you're that Ananias. Go. Ananias responds in verse 13. Oftentimes in the Bible, uh, we see something bad happen. We see a judgment. We see uh, some kind of persecution, a bad situation, whatever the case might be. And then we get the phrase, one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. We get, but God. Right? Even over and over again in the Old Testament, the Israelites rebel against God. They, they go after idols. They marry with people they're not supposed to marry. And God says, 
this is going to end poorly. If you continue down this road, it's going to end poorly. You're going to get destroyed. But God makes a way. Over and over, God shows up and does something amazing. But God. And it seems, though, when we have a phrase like the beginning of verse 13, when it's but, insert whoever person's name, usually it's us making a mess of something. And that's what we have here. Ananias that decides to disciple-splain the situation to God since he clearly doesn't know what's going on. In verse 13 and 14, he says, Lord, I've heard about this Saul guy, and he is bad news. He's done evil in Jerusalem against your followers. He has authority to come to this city and arrest us. He's a bad man. God, you couldn't possibly want me to go and help this guy. He's too messy. He's too broken. She's too much of a sinner. He doesn't dress like he should. She doesn't talk like she should. He doesn't know enough Bible. He doesn't go to church enough. He drinks too much. She's a liar. She's a jerk. He's too far right. She's too far left. I heard he sleeps around. He always thinks he's right. She's had so many bad experiences with the church, she'll never come back. He's heard the gospel so many times, and he never responded. What's the point? He came from a bad family. She's done too much. He's done too little. We find reason after reason. We find excuse after excuse to write people off, to give up, to decide they aren't worth the prayers, they aren't worth the conversation, they aren't worth the affection, they aren't worth the friendship. That person could never actually become a Christian. God, aren't you paying attention? Haven't you seen? Haven't you heard? Don't you know the damage they have done to attack your church? They're the bad guys. We are the good guys. Brothers and sisters, at one point we were all bad guys. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Living in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. By nature. Out of the box. Default wiring. Rebels and enemies separated from God. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we could do anything, while we were still actively rebelling, still actively choosing our way over his way, still actively rejecting him, he loved us so much he died for us. You who are his children, you who are the sons and daughters of God, you were once his enemy. You were once condemned by your sin to eternal damnation and separation from God in hell. You and I are not the deciders of who gets to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You and I are not the deciders of who gets to enter into the family of God. You and I are not the deciders of who gets to enter into our church, church community. To limit the saving work of God, to declare and decide that that person is too far gone and God can't possibly save them. To declare and decide that God can't or won't save someone is to limit the power, love, 
grace and righteousness of God in a way that manipulates him into being what you want him to be rather than who he actually is. It's our way of trying to control him and control who is welcome into those doors, welcome into this community, and to limit, to try and make it so that it's, it's just the easy people, just the most lovable, the most convenient, the ones with the least amount of baggage. That is not for us to do. If anyone was the least likely, or as Saul says about himself later on, if anyone was the chief of sinners, it was him. And yet God demonstrated his own love for Saul in this, that while he was still a sinner, while he was still actively persecuting the church, Christ died for him and for me and for you and for all of us. No one is too far gone. No one is too broken. You cannot out God's grace and neither can anyone else. If we are going to be the lights of the world that God has called us to be, that means we are going to be shining our lights in the darkness of the world, shining the light of the gospel with our words and with our actions. We do not pick and choose who and when we are to shine. We are just to shine. We are to point people to Jesus, share and live in light of the gospel, and then it is up to the Holy Spirit to convict and convert and challenge and call people to himself. God knows who that person is. God knows their heart, and he knows what he is doing. He knows what they are doing, and he knows what he is doing in them. God tells Ananias, I know exactly who Saul was, who Saul is, and who Saul is going to be. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I got big plans for Saul. He's going to further the gospel to people and places all over the world. And along with that, he would face great suffering, as we heard earlier. This life that Saul gets called into was not going to be light and easy, sunshine and rainbows, but one of great challenge and suffering for the name of Jesus. And so Ananias goes to Saul and obeys what God told him to do. He puts his hands on Saul, and in that instant, something like scales, some crusty stuff falls off of Saul's eyes and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He then gets baptized, assumedly, probably by Ananias. He gets some food, so he has some bodily strength to go with this new spiritual strength. And then Ananias, we don't hear from him again in the Bible. He plays this amazing, important role in the conversion story of Saul. He is Saul's first friend after conversion. He's the first one to welcome Saul in as brother. Like I said, he's probably baptized Saul, and then he's just gone. We talked last week about Philip and the eunuch, and the fact that God may use you to be a blessing to others and be part of their story. Ananias is another example of that. He was faithful, albeit with some hesitation to what God called him to do, but he's still faithful. And because of that, he is forever remembered and owed a bit of gratitude to anyone who benefited from the ministry of Saul to further the gospel, you and I included. God provides us moments to step into. He provides us opportunities. We might not consider them to be big or important or vital, but others see them very differently. You think Saul ever forgot Ananias? Doubtful. You can have an impact. You can play a role in the eternal life of those around you if you are willing to step into the moment that God provides you and respond when he tells you to go. It can be as simple as a word of encouragement 
or a prayer for someone struggling. But we got to be paying attention. So here we have now Saul, this guy who was wrecking the church, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He now counts himself among the followers of the way. And we see in verse 20 through 22, Saul wastes no time. He is spending time with the disciples. He's in the synagogues preaching, Jesus is the son of God. This is huge that he would say that. Because up until this point in the book of Acts, seemingly in the church life, this phrase, this idea was not stated. Jesus is the son of God is not expressly stated anywhere else in the book of Acts except for right here as Saul is doing it in the synagogue. For the Jews, that title, Son of God, it reminded them of a lot of things. It tied them to being the children of Israel, to being God's chosen ones. But it also reminded them of the promised Messiah. He was referred to as a Son of God. That promised Messiah they were still waiting for. But Paul met Jesus on the road, and while he doesn't know everything that he would eventually know, he doesn't know much in the way of intellectual understanding of the complexities of Trinitarian theology, or the interworkings of propitiation, he knew Jesus is the Son of God. He knew he was the Messiah, the one sent by God to free people from the slavery to sin and call them to a new relationship with him. He knew enough to tell others, if you have put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you know enough to tell others. And so he preaches this message, and people are blown away, not only by the message, but by the one delivering it. Word has clearly preceded Saul about what was happening, about what he had come to do. They knew why he was in Damascus, to arrest the followers of the way. And yet, here he was, preaching and proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior that the Jews had been waiting for. They heard that message, and they saw him preaching it, and they are confounded by it. It was to the synagogues of Damascus that Saul was sent with authority to capture disciples. But instead, he goes to those same synagogues of Damascus in order to make new disciples of Jesus. He does that for a few days, as Luke is going to say. He does that for a few days, and then we get to verse 23. It says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So how do we go from being shocked and confounded by, let's kill him? The answer might be found in verse 23, in those opening words of Luke. It says, when many days had passed. One of the many things I love about the Bible is the Bible helps us understand the Bible. In Galatians 1, you don't have to turn there. If you're looking for something to read this week, you're running out of stuff with your devotional, you can go study this. Galatians 1, Saul, by then known as Paul, is writing, and he wrote of his background and the events that we're studying here this morning. And he gives us a little bit of insight into what Luke means by many days had passed. In Galatians 1, he says, uh, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Paul writes, after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So many days in Luke's mind is... Three years, Saul is gone. So the timeline looks kind of like this. Saul is headed to Damascus from Jerusalem to capture Christians. On the way, Jesus shows up, radically alters the entire future of this man and really the church and everyone who would ever hear about the gospel. You know, no big deal for him. Saul spends three days blind in Damascus. 
He receives his sight, gets some food, gets the Holy Spirit, he gets a baptism, begins preaching the gospel in Damascus for a bit of time. Then he heads to Arabia for three years. Now, this is not modern-day Saudi Arabia. I think I got a map. Arabia at that time, so Damascus, he's here. He preaches here for a while, and then he heads back down south, and he spends time in this general area of nothingness. And that's basically known as Arabia at the time. Arabia at the time was known uh, to have Egypt and the Red Sea to the west, Edom and Judah to the north, and Assyria and Babylonia to the east. This area was controlled by Eretus IV, who was the ruler of the Nabataean kingdom, uh, and he would also rule most of Arabia. We learn, again, from 2 Corinthians 11. See? Interacts with the Bible. It's beautiful. Saul tells us about being lowered in the basket in Acts 9. So what was Paul doing? The good question is, what was Paul doing for these three years? How did he go from, I'm preaching in Damascus, people are confounded by the gospel, and then many days later, three years later, they want me dead. There's speculation over what these three years looked like for Saul. Most kind of think it's a religious retreat of sorts. It's time for him to kind of work through and, and, and process everything that had happened to him. He's learning and processing what his conversion truly meant and even what the scriptures meant in light of Jesus. While I do think there was some of that, it would seem that Saul was more active in those three years. He wasn't just keeping to himself hiding for three years. Clearly, he did something to annoy the governor of the area enough that they were sending out people to kill him. And what we've seen throughout Acts and really throughout history and even today on social media is that if you want officials and leaders and pretty much anybody to get really mad at you, just preach about Jesus and the gospel, and they will respond in kind. So I assume that's a lot of what Saul was doing. And so he spends three years, many days, by Luke's account, before coming back to Damascus. By this time, there is a plot to kill him. So he begins the long life of suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus, we saw in verse 16. The persecutor has now become the persecuted but also he is divinely protected as he is supported by some fellow disciples. They put him in a basket and they drop him. They carry him down outside the walls of Damascus so he could get out. From here, it's been three years since his conversion. And now it's time to head back to Jerusalem. A very different man than the last time he was in God's city. By this point, the Pharisees know what has happened to him that he has defected away from them, he is now seen as a traitor and an enemy of the temple. But the very people he wants to associate and connect with, the disciples, while they might be a forgiving bunch, they're not a forgetful bunch. We see in verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It had only been like three, three and a half years at this point since Saul was kicking down doors in Jerusalem, arresting Christians. And again, while word may have gotten back to them by this point that Saul had changed, there was still a lot of air, doubt in the air. The thought was, maybe this is just a long con. Maybe he's just trying to take us down from the inside. The Christians were hesitant and wanted some kind of proof, some kind of validation of this change in Saul, and they got it from one of their own. We see in verse 27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. We met Barnabas way back in chapter 4. He's a Levite. He's a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
Barnabas' name means son of? You, you know it. Encouragement, thank you. And true to his name, he encourages the believers in Jerusalem to welcome Saul in. Barnabas had a reputation with the believers where he could basically vouch for the genuineness of Saul's faith. Now, we don't know the nature of the relationship before this, but clearly Barnabas had experienced the new life of Saul. And so Saul is accepted into the community of believers. We know from Saul's account in Galatians that he spends most of this time with Peter and James during these initial days. And while with them, it seems Saul picked up the mantle left by Stephen so many years ago. How ironic. He begins disputing and debating with the Hellenists. They didn't like this. They didn't like the, how smart he was, how wise he was. And once again, a reoccurring theme we're going to see with Saul, those he debated wanted to kill him. Jerusalem basically was getting a little too hot for Saul, and so he was taken to Caesarea and then led to Tarsus to his hometown to go be there and preach. And he will continue to preach there and spend time in that area. And we're not going to hear from Saul for a few chapters, actually. But then when we do pick him back up in a few chapters, he's basically going to be the one driving the story for the rest of the way. And so I want to close with verse 31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's a drastic shift in tone from what we've seen in the last couple of chapters. Stephen was killed, which was the spark that allowed Saul to go on a spree of ravaging the church, breathing threats and murder against it. The, the followers are spread, and they have to leave Jerusalem. And even then, they aren't safe as Saul starts tracking them down. But at the same time, he himself was tracked down by Jesus. What was chaos and hate and persecution scattering by the followers of Christ has turned into a peace a building up and an edifying and multiplying. Now, it's not saying that nothing else bad happened to the way. Saul wasn't the only guy attacking the church. And actually, historically at the time, there's changes in the Roman leadership and in the church leadership, which is going to bring much more attention and persecution against the Christians. But in the midst of all of that, there's peace. In the midst of continued persecution and scattering, as the community was no longer confined to Jerusalem, there's still peace, shalom, wholeness, unity. There was growth, not only numerically, but as, as new people experienced the gospel, but a building up of the community of relationships, of personal understanding of the work and person of Jesus. And as a result of that peace and building up, the church multiplied because God's people were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. When God's people are humbly walking with him, Rightly understanding who we are in relation to who he is. He is perfect and holy and eternal. We are imperfect and created and temporary. When we can humbly understand who he is in relation to who we are while also trusting the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives, the gospel goes forward and the church grows. This verse marks a special and beautiful reality of the strength of the church then and now. Because the church is the creation of and gift of God, it can and will last and endure for as long as God wants it to. The church endured the death of Stephen and a frantic and serious persecution which scattered them around the area. And at the end of it all, there is peace. There's a strengthening. There's a multiplying happening and in unity throughout the land, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Galilee and even Samaria. 
The gospel is moving. The gospel is doing work. And the church continues. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to the account of Saul's conversion and what that means? I mean, the obvious answer is to do likewise. If you have not put your faith in Jesus, if you have not experienced the forgiveness for your sins, turn toward God. Put your faith in him. Admit your need for a savior. Believe that Jesus is God and he died for your sins and choose for him to be your Lord and savior. But that's just one of the many things to take from this account. Throughout it, we see three key men. You have Saul, obviously, but I don't want to overlook Ananias and Barnabas. Because we can be challenged and encouraged and take things away from them as well. Ananias teaches us trepidation is okay. As long as it doesn't stop you. It's okay to question. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to even doubt at times. As long as those things don't stop you from pursuing God and obeying his word. Be humble. Be humble enough to know that God knows best. Trust him. Listen for the Holy Spirit's direction. And when he says move, when he says go, you go. Be willing to welcome the most unlikely of persons into the family of God. Be on the lookout for opportunities to be for someone a friend and an answer to prayer. With Barnabas, be like Barnabas. Be an encourager. Stand up for people. Be willing to be a friend even when it doesn't make sense, even when you might take a hit on your reputation for standing up for someone. Be that bridge that welcomes people in and makes it easier for them to be part of a community, especially here. CF is great. I love this church. But a church our size, the challenge that will always come with it is exclusion due to a lack of familiarity. When people, when new people come to be part of our community, don't shun them out because you don't know them yet. Welcome them in. Be the person who chooses to love and care for others, even when they might not be the easiest person to love or even like. Set the tone for those around you. This is how Christian community should look. We're going to welcome and love people. Who can you build up and encourage in your circle of influence? And lastly, from Saul, be willing to be corrected. Be willing to go to God's word and continue to learn and be challenged and grow. Saul has a major wake-up call. Everything he thought he knew was flipped upside down. In our world today, no one ever wants to be wrong. No one wants to have their minds changed. Everyone is so entrenched in what they think. Be willing to learn. Saul's conversion teaches us no one is unsavable. God is always at work. So share what you know. Do not hold back the great gift of the gospel that you have. Do not be selfish, but be generous with your knowledge of the gospel. Shine the light of the gospel with your words and with your actions. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being strengthened because they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and so they multiplied. May we find the peace and strength of God by being people who humbly build one another up through our words and with our actions and walk in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit as we seek to be the lights of the world. Let's pray.